0: Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 2, Let's see if I can get straightened, or 3 rather, get everything straightened out here. Everybody get a good afternoon nap so that we'll be nice and wide awake for tonight. Yeah, good. Those Sunday afternoon naps, I miss them. They, they're overrated, though. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, we left off uh, this morning. We finished the first half of the message, ultimately, and probably even a little bit more than half the message, because the church in Sardis was a, is considered by Christ a dead church, right? And it would be the uh, so far on the totem pole, the lowest on the totem pole when it came to the seven churches. And we talked about uh, the depth to which these people had sunk and how there were no mention of any false teachers and no uh, mention of any specific sins, or uh, like he's mentioned three other times either Jezebel or the Nicolaitans or some kind of false teaching that they were being hit with, the other churches, but here there's none. And it appears in his passage and in this passage that he's talking to them that their biggest problem was is that they were complacent, that they had been lulled to sleep in their sin, and they had drifted away from Christ and drifted away from the truths that were established initially with the foundation of the church, and that is The gospel. Let's read our passage and we'll look again at this church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. We pray that now you'll help us to understand we are in need of you. Apart from the Spirit's work in our own hearts, we won't understand and we won't apply these passages to our lives. And so, Father, we beg you now, help us, oh God, help us to heed these words and respond in obedience and in trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This quote from A.W. Tozer, it's funny, Ryan came up to me. Um, before the service this morning, and gave me this, and said, "Here, you need to read this little this little quote in here and I looked at him when he, when I read it, I looked at him and said how did you, did you read the passage ahead of time because <laughs> it 's so applicable it 's the same stuff." And so I, I think it would be a good starting place for us. It's from A. W. Tozer's book, The Root of the Righteous, of the Righteous. I did not read the whole book, so I'm just quoting, I can't give you a long discourse of whether this is good. I know he's a great writer, but I know this quote fits very well. He's talking about the root of righteousness. He says this. He says, a tree can wither or weather almost any storm if its root is sound. But when the fig tree, which our Lord cursed, dried up from the roots, it immediately withered away. And from Mark eleven twenty 20 to 21. A church that is soundly rooted cannot be destroyed. But nothing can save a church whose root is dried up. No stimulation, no advertising campaigns, no gifts of money, and no beautiful edifice, or no beautiful building, can bring back life to the rootless tree. It's the same concept. Sardis was a church that was on the verge of death. And why? Because they had abandoned the gospel. They had abandoned Christ. And in effect, they were drying up. They were shriveling up. And I would suggest to you that you can have a beautiful building. You can have a great music program. You can have tons and tons and tons of programs. But if you're a dead church, you're a dead church. It's going to take a miracle of God, the Spirit of God, to work in that church in order to bring about restoration. Folks, I don't want that to happen to our church. I don't want that to happen to us. I don't care if we have 15 or a hundred, or three thousand. We must have the same goal. And that is for Christ to be exalted and for us to remain faithful to him. Right? No matter how many people we have, no matter what the building looks like, whether we're meeting here or in the ballroom with the disco ball going at the same time. We have to stand on the truth of the gospel. That's what's going to make a difference. Otherwise, we'd be a dead church. We can be a dead church here or a dead church in a nice building. Great words. Let's look. At once, once a church is completely dead, there's nothing that can bring it back to life but this spirit. Here, Christ, we saw this morning, gave a stern, stinging description in verses 1 that they have a name, that they're alive, but they're in fact dead. Then he gave a stern rebuke to the complacent church. To wake up and strengthen what they had which was was established initially and remained. Then Christ gave a remedy for their complacent attitudes. And that was remember where you came from. Keep it. Keep on keeping it. And repent. Turn from your direction in which you're going to embrace Christ and trust in him. And finally, Christ gave him a strong warning for the complacent church to wake up. In verse 3, wake up or he's coming at any moment. We saw that this morning. And again, I asked you the question, how would Jesus describe your walk with him? What would he be saying to you? And if I have to say in here in the service, I know it's Sunday night. If I say, now listen up or wake up, I'm not implying the same that he was saying. But it's important. Look at our hearts. Where are you with him? Notice, however, Jesus doesn't stop with this majority. He moves now to the faithful minority. We see that in verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We see here from this group that we must all remain faithful to Christ even if we are in the minority, the few as he calls them. Jesus gave a commendation here and then a promise to those who were in the minority. In fact, he gives three promises. He gives a commendation, an encouragement, and then he gives a promise, or three promises rather. Let's look first at the commendation. He gave a high praise. Look at this praise in verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Again, the but here is a strong contrast from the majority. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. This is literally, but you have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. If you get your King James Version of the Bible here, you got it right on this one for sure. It's literally the word names. Now why does he use names and why does the NASB put, the New American Standard put here people? Why? Answer, because the names implies people and they translate it. But if you notice in your Bibles, anybody that has a New American Standard There's a little one there, and in the middle, the literal translation is given in the middle of your Bible. That helps you to understand if he's trying to make a point here. They sometimes give that literal just so you can understand a little better. But why does he bring up this concept of the name again? Why? Why is it there? But you have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Reason? Because he's talked about those in the majority that were had a name of being alive, but were dead. Here, in contrast, you have the people that have a name and who are what? Really genuine. They live up to their name. In contrast, you have people that um, don't live up to their name, the majority, but the minority lives up to their name. Again, this would be a call for all of us to evaluate our own hearts. Do we live up? To what we are called. They have not. And notice what he says about them. They have not soiled their garment. Literally this is. They haven't smeared or polluted their garments. Now is he talking literally about their clothes here? No. This is most likely. He's using it as a metaphor for their spiritual life. Right? They haven't polluted their lives with sin. But it would be vivid for the people in Sardis. Why? Because the clothing industry was huge here. They would have this fresh in their mind. They understood all about fabrics and how to dye fabrics. As a matter of fact, one commentator says that, or said that uh, fabrics uh, dyeing and wool dyeing was started right here. To dye fabrics was started in Sardis. So this would be a huge industry and would be a vivid picture for them. To have a polluted garment would be what? <coughs> Horrible in Sardis. And this would make up a beautiful picture for those who had not polluted their garments with sin. That is, they had not polluted their lives with sin. The concept points, obviously, to avoiding the wickedness of the world, despite being in the minority. We've got it good here, don't we? Think about it. In our church, granted we're not a super giant church, but... We're not in the minority in our church, are we? How would you like to be in a church in Sardis where the majority were dead? Not believers. It could be non-believers. The vast majority. I actually heard a, a, a pastor one time say that he believed more than half of all of his churches, of, of the, the Southern Baptist Convention is what he said, that More than half were not, and I'm a Southern Baptist pastor, so don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to step on any toes. More than half were not even believers. We're not genuine believers. That would be tough to be in that church. By God's grace, I, I don't go to bed and lay my head on the pillow and think of y'all and say, Man, I'm pretty sure that person's not a saved. That person doesn't know Christ. Y'all's lives by God's grace, and I do not say this as a bragging thing, I see God's grace working in your life. But how would you like to be in a church that was dead? More than half. It'd be tough, wouldn't it? It'd be very difficult. They had not soiled. Here, these people were standing true no matter what the circumstances. Next, Jesus gave another, he gave three wonderful promises, or gave a promise to the faithful minority. Look at it. Second part of verse 4 and verse 5. He says, And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father And before his angels. There's three promises here, right? You see them? Let's look at them. One, for the faithful minority, they will walk with me in white. One. Second promise. Beginning of verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. That would be the second. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You could take the first half of verse five as a restatement. Of the end of verse 4. So that would still be the first one. We'll talk about these as we go along. Let's look at them real quick. The three commandments are. Or the three promises for the overcomer. The believer. The faithful minority. They will walk with me in white. One. Second. They will overcome. Or the overcomer will. Christ will not erase from the book of life. And third. He will confess them before his father. Let's look at these promises. What does it mean to walk with him in white? Well, to walk with him in white, obviously, walk has to do with what? Fellowship or living with. This is talking about glory, isn't it? Obviously, he's talking about walking with him or fellowshipping him. This is the whole concept of being in heaven with Christ, living with him and enjoying a relationship with him. But it says, with me in white. Again, what does the white point to? Most likely this is a reference to purity. It's mentioned all the way through Revelation. He talks about this concept of being clean and undefiled. Whereas the other ones had soiled their garments, we walk in white. That is those who have not stained their garments. They will walk with him in purity. Now, it's interesting here, he kind of develops this a little bit more. But look at the end of verse four. This one stuck out. It's funny too, because your selection of songs today, did you did you look at the verse? Did you look at the verses or the section before you? I'm just, just side note, we can do this casually. You didn't? Because did you hear one of our songs was Thou Art Worthy? Thou art worthy, right? But who's he talking about in the song? It's talking about the Lord, right? And all I could think is when I saw this, for they are worthy. Okay, now I don't know about you, but the first thousand times I read this passage, (laughs) I thought, well, nobody's worthy. Who's worthy? Anybody worthy? Well, no. Not by yourself. But by the grace of God, we are reckoned as righteous. And by God's working in us, he demonstrates his grace in us as we walk worthy of the calling that we've been given, right? Now, nobody in heaven's going to stand up and say, Hey, I'm the worthy one. Give me the white garb, right? It will be Christ pronouncing us worthy because of his grace working in us and by our humble submission to him, right? But that's because of a changed heart that came because of who? Him, again, but he does consider the believer worthy. It reminds us of uh, how um, Noah was called righteous. (laughs) God calls him righteous. Why is Noah righteous and everybody else wasn't righteous? Answer, God, his grace and his goodness in Noah's life, right? Do you think Noah's up in heaven right now going, hey, I'm the righteous one? No, he understood that all of his righteousness was ultimately imparted to him by God through faith in Christ or in God as he had been revealed, right? And that all of his deeds and all of his actions were ultimately because of God's grace. If we don't soil our garments and we don't become completely polluted by the world and we don't become a dead church, when in 40 years this church is still standing firm on those promises, are we all going to stand up at that 40-year mark and say, we are worthy. No, we're not. We're going to go, thou art worthy. And that's the attitude you've got to have in order to be considered worthy. If your heart is, I got it, I'm worthy, you're not worthy. (laughs) But if you Understand that it's Christ who considers us worthy by God's grace and his work in our lives through the Spirit. Then we will be considered by him worthy as we do not jump into all these deals. I'll tell you, dealing with that guy on campus is the drive home for this. That preacher that stands up and says he's perfect, basically, and he doesn't sin anymore. I'll tell you, it comes off as what? Arrogant. It just proves that he's not worthy. If you read this passage and say, Lord, I'm not worthy. Make me worthy. Then you're in the right row. But if you're standing up going, hey, I'm that one. Then you've probably polluted your garments after all. And your works are really dead. So it's important for us to understand it's by grace and grace alone. Obviously, this worthy is because of God's grace in Christ and Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. But all of that's based on what? The first three chapters of Ephesians. Of who you are in Christ and what God's done and that you've been saved. Therefore walk worthy of that calling because you can in the grace of God and because God is working in your life. Not because you're something special but because God's something special. So because of who we are and what we have in Christ, we walk in a manner worthy, and therefore we are considered worthy, and we enjoy the blessings of glory, which includes fellowship with God eternally in white, pure robes. He kind of develops it further in the beginning of verse 5. He says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I believe the clothed there in white garments is not something that we do. It's an implication here that God is the one that clothes us in these white garments. He's the one that gives us the righteous right standing with him. We have purity because of him. It's not because of us. Again, God is the one. The overcomer gets this great blessing. Who overcomes? Who's the conqueror? The one that goes into the battle like David, right? When David went up against David and Goliath, Goliath, what did he say? He said, Here I go. Who? I'm going to take this guy out because I'm the man. (laughs) I can handle him. He's just a giant. No big deal. No, he didn't say that. He says, Who is this guy that mocks the Lord God Almighty? God will take him down. His trust was not in himself, his trust was in. God. And he was a conqueror. And he will be one of those clothed in white garments because of God. Notice second promise. Christ will not erase his name from the book of life. So what's the natural question here that comes to everybody's mind? When you read this, what jumps out at you? Come on, going to got to say it for me. Can we, lose our Can we lose our salvation? Can we have our name erased from the book of life, right? You read that. It says and I will not erase his name from the book of life. So does that mean that it's possible to have our name erased from the book of life? You might think, well, it seems like it. Why would he say it that? No, that is called a logical fallacy. We've got to be careful of this. I love this. Uh, Nate helped me out with this. This It's a great little quote from D.A. Carson's book. I didn't remember it. Oh, and of course I forgot and missed the page. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. I'm going to read you a logical fallacy. It's a really good one. you got to listen to it real closely. Okay. Logical fallacies. Why are fire engines red? Why are fire engines red? Here's the logic. They have four wheels and eight men on them. Four plus eight is 12. Twelve inches make a ruler. A ruler is... Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. And the fish have fins. And the fins hate the Russians. Fins, (laughs) F-I-N-N-S. And the Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian. R-U-S-H-I-N. So, they're red. That's called a logical fallacy, isn't it? It's horrible. (laughs) In other words, they take a concept, they add to it, and they twist it, and make it say whatever they want it to say, right? What's Christ trying to get across here? He's not talking about those that he's going to wipe out of the book. He's trying to make the emphasis that their salvation is sure. He's actually trying to make the opposite point. And it would be a logical fallacy to assume that that means he will erase somebody out of there. He's making not that point. That point is not his main point. He's not talking about the other side. We have a tendency to flip things over and automatically assume the other side of the argument. And that's not what he's talking about here. He's trying to give a promise that those who overcome and conquer will be sure in their salvation. Christ will hold on. He's the one that has established. Does that make sense? I make sure. Anybody have any questions? You're, you're okay to ask questions now. It's Sunday night. Remember, we made this a little bit more casual. Everybody's real quiet. All right. So it's a logical fallacy to automatically assume the opposite. All right? And all of Scripture points, by the way, that you cannot take. Anybody out of God's hand. Anybody that God has chosen and, God, and they believe in Christ can't be plucked from his hand. What's the one passage that stands out? How about Romans 8? I think that's a good one. Let's look. Romans 8. It would contradict all other scripture. Why I'm Christ is what? Because of Christ. And his grip on me is a lot stronger than my grip on him. His point here is those who overcome till the end because of God's grace will not be snatched out of Christ's hand. They won't lose their salvation. I love this. Look at verse 31. We'll read down to the end. It's great. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. How do we know we can't lose it? Ultimately, because Christ is interceding for us. Nobody can bring a charge against God's chosen because God is the one that keeps us. Let's keep going. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors Through me mustering it up to keep myself saved. No, it says, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Obviously, throughout Scripture, this is very clear. So what is Christ trying to get at here? He's trying to make the point that those by grace who conquer through Christ will not lose their salvation. And in fact, they are sure in their salvation and will experience glory with him forever. This eternal life with him forever. That's his point. Let's go on to the last promise. The last promise. He says, He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, one, and will not, I will not erase them from the, their name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And I can see how this would be such an encouragement to these faithful minority. Think about it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who do you confess? Who are you talking about? Who's the name that you exalt? I mean, let's take a poll real quick. Out of one name that you would want to exalt more than anybody else, and probably try to more than anybody else, who would it be? Jesus. Jesus turns this around for those that taking words from Christ in Matthew 10, 32. The ones that had not denied his name, the minority, that had continued to say Christ is the way, Christ should be exalted, only Christ, whereas everybody else had abandoned the truth and had died, many of them were on the edge of death, This minority kept saying, Jesus is our hope. He's our only way. And Jesus then turns around and says, what? And I will confess his name. That is, the believer that confessed me, the conqueror that confessed me in this church that was practically dead, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This promise heightens the previous promise the reasons we are able to enjoy the glory of God forever is because Jesus will acknowledge the genuine believer to his Father. Jesus stated in Matthew 10:32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What's the point? Here we've got this idea of Jesus confessing us before the Father. Why? Because by grace we have confessed him ultimately as we lived here. Christ is our hope. He's our only hope. Obviously to stand for Christ in Sardis meant something, huh? I, I'm convicted by this too, all too often. What does it cost us to confess Christ here? In America... What kind of suffering do we do here? (laughs) What kind of persecution do we suffer? To go to Grace Bible Church of Tampa, does it cost you much? (laughs) Not much, does it? Can you imagine being in this church? I could see, I could see where there could be a day one day, folks, to confess Christ would cost us something. I don't know about you, but I know that the only way that I would survive at those moments is by the grace of God, and I need him. How about you? Listen, we have great hope, and that hope is is that Christ will clothe us in purity in heaven and that we are guaranteed of salvation because of him and that he will literally confess us before the Father And the angels, this one's mine, is what he would literally say. This one's mine for all of us that remain faithful to him. Again, by grace, not because we deserve it, but because of him. Again, as Jesus has done previously, he calls all of us, he calls all the churches. Look, verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, take note of these words. We all need to be faithfully committed to walk with Christ in honor of him because one day we will stand before him and we will either enjoy him forever and walk with him in purity or we will face him as our judge. By grace we will all trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us Thank you for Christ, our hope, our Savior, our Master. Thank you for Jesus, the one who died in our place, rose from the dead, and is seated in heaven, and one day will return. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you to the end. Not that we will see any worth in ourselves, but we will see that you are gracious and good, and we will call you out to you as the one who is worthy. Help us now to honor you as we conclude. We pray this in Christ's name.